Now you will notice, though you can't see, I'll have to see if we can get this up on the screen. There we are. You will notice that uh, we have been all year working together uh, on a series called Grace Together, meaning uh, when you live in community, it's not enough actually just to all believe the same things. We expose really our true beliefs by how we behave living in community. And um, I just want to say, if you were here last week, I learned everything I know about moral hazard from Pastor Eugene's economic classes. Actually, I knew about the concept, but I didn't know that there was a name given to it until last Sunday. And if you were here last Sunday, you heard Pastor Eugene speak about the moral hazard that was present in that Roman church and was the consequence that created this need in Paul to write this letter. And Eugene, I'm not sure if I even have got this right, but this, this is from the notes that I took. So here's what I believe is how he described last week moral hazard. Moral hazard occurs when I think I am protected from any negative consequences, and so I am likely or more likely to behave in a way that will actually result in those consequences, the very consequences that I think I'm protected from. And why is this a conversation that Paul is having in Rome? Why is this a conversation that now we must have? Because moral hazard doesn't matter if you're living life all by yourself. You're the only person that's impacted. Most hermits are not in danger of causing a movement because they've got no one to talk to. They have no one to influence by your behavior. But when you're living life in community, moral hazard matters. It makes an impact not just on you but on the entire community. That's why parenting is so exhausting. Because just like my family had family rules, the reason I left was not because we had no rules, it's because we did have rules and I didn't like them. When you raise a child, you can teach that child, in this family we don't play with fire. But then another child comes along. Now, now, I know it's not as uh, dangerous here in Singapore as it might be in, say, Canada, but we raised three boys in a wooden house. And, and we had a rule, don't play with fire, that all of our children kept except one. See, when, when you have a rule and there's someone who's living with this sense of moral hazard, it just takes one match to burn the whole house down. If no one else holds that one person accountable to their behavior. And so here we have, in the book of Romans, a church that had learned to use grace as an excuse to keep living in a way that was dangerous, hazardous to the entire community. And so we come again to this text in which Paul is reminding this community in Rome. And today, reminding this community that we call Grace Baptist Church, you believe that grace has you protected. That's our name, after all. But your behaviors 
have caught you. Do do we understand this, that, that if we actually thought we would get caught, we wouldn't do it. Right, that, that's why when you catch somebody, quote, red-handed, end quote, they're always surprised. Because if they thought someone was going to catch them crossing the causeway with less than a half a tank of petrol, they wouldn't have tried it. Who knew they could tell? These are people living with the consequences of moral hazard. So notice this first question that the Apostle Paul asks. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? I mean, at the very surface, it appears as though he's just repeating what he was saying last week in verse 1. You can notice that they're actually very similar, these two verses. Verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Verse 15, what then? Verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then verse 15, are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? The difference is the verb tense. In in verse 1, the verb is a present active tense, basically meaning, so um, can we continue to sin then just so that we can amplify the glory of grace? They have basically sanctified sin with grace. Oh, Pastor, I'm not intending to grieve the Lord. I'm just wanting to show how glorious His grace is. Is that okay? That's the active tense. But in, the, in verse 15, he's actually using a tense we don't have in English. In fact, there are very few modern uh, languages that still maintain an aorist tense. In the, in the aorist tense, it's not present. It's, it's perhaps, probably you know, I'm, I, is it okay then to sin accidentally? Because I for sure will sin accidentally. So what's happening in verse 15 is now the Apostle Paul is responding to a different faction in the church. The first faction is those who want to sanctify their behavior, make excuse for it and say, hey, by the way, we're just trying to be evangelistic, show how Wonderful is the grace of God. But the second faction was the we're only human members. Well, you you can't expect us to be perfect because we used to be restrained under what? The law. But now since we're free of the law, now that we have no obligation from the law, what is there to restrain us? Really, really nothing because we're, we're only human after all. That's the aorist tense, but notice Paul's immediate and emphatic answer, by no means. Do you not know that if you are presenting yourself to anyone as obedient slaves? Now, I want us to watch these themes. We're going to see it over and over and over in this text. If we present ourselves as obedient slaves, we are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to to righteousness. In 1978, sorry to bring him up, but Bob Dylan uh, represented a generation of free-thinking, anti-establishment dropouts. I heard him often called the 20th century prophet. And young people flocked to his concerts to hear his scripture sung. Uh, Maybe... I don't know if he ever came to Singapore, but he was huge in North America. 
he, he typified the kind of messianic counterculture. We're going to drop out. Follow no one, he used to say. Be free. Follow no one. And then in the winter of 1978, he was in Arizona, had just done yet another exhausting concert, singing his same worn-out mantras. And he stumbled into his hotel room, and, and there the, the prophet of freedom, who was a slave to his cigarettes, began to fumble around in the hotel room looking for matches. Because in those days, hotel rooms always kept books of matches, and it was advertising for the hotel. He was rummaging about in, the, in his hotel room. He opened the bedside table drawer, and there he found a Bible. And he, he started to read it. And the amazing thing, he wrote later, when I got to Romans 6, I, I felt the hand of God on me. I felt Jesus in this hotel room. And when he got up the next morning at 11.30, because apparently that's what rock stars do, he wrote these words. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it might be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. This is the message of the Apostle Paul. You will be a slave to the person you serve, to the thing you serve, even to a possession, you know, you some, some boss that you have. You, you have no obligation but to, to serve his desires or, or, or maybe the Lord or, or some thing, some craving you have in your own heart. You will be a slave to that craving, not just a little bit, but all the time and every day. Or you could be a slave to righteousness. No. Let me just talk about myself. You know we have this property. We, we couldn't afford to buy in Vancouver, so we have this very remote, remote property. The moment we purchased that property, we became a slave to that property. We had to service the mortgage. Who does that on, on a piece of land with no building? And every summer, I have to go there and cut up the trees that fall down in the winter. We've spent thousands of dollars serving that property. And when it finally gets fully serviced, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to die. That's what happens when you serve a master who is not worthy. And some of you young adults, right, you got your first flat. Good for you. Welcome to a lifelong endeavor of slavery. You, you see, we're constantly conditioned to serve the things we think we own. And the consequences of that does not lead to joy. It does not lead to lifelong satisfaction. And so secondly, the apostle begins to talk about the master that we serve. Verses 17 and 18 says this, But thanks be to God, you were only once slaves of sin. But now you've become obedient. There it is again. Obedient. 
from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, you used to serve sin, now you serve the gospel. You live for that. You breathe for that. And having set, being set free from sin, you become a slave to righteousness. Now, I know there's many different charts that describe this, but the first one I have seen was done by uh, a scholar named Everett Harrison. And here we can see this, this gap that every evangelistic tract talks about, this gap that separates us from the righteousness of God. Why are we separated from the righteousness of a holy God? Because we are full, saturated with sin. And, and this number right here, this number one, represents the very moment at which God gave us the grace to repent from our sin. And that new birth happened. It comes by what? By grace in faith alone. This is called a change in status. This is not a process. This is an immediate change of status, this justification. When God said the work of Christ on Calvary is enough to justify that worm named Ian. My status wasn't a process of change. It was an immediate change right here. I became a debtor to the righteousness of God at that very moment. Justification is immediate and it's forever. But this is important. If the work is done and the deal is sealed, why is Paul even having to write this letter? Why, why is it if all right now I'm justified? I'm, I'm just good where I am at. If the work is done, why do we have chapter 6? Because the behaviors in the church in Rome, because the behaviors in the church we call grace, there are behaviors in my own heart that do not seem consistent with the righteousness of God. In other words, we have embraced with our mouth a theology, but we live something differently. And it matters when we live in community, the, the, the members at Rome, yes, even some of us, are living in this dangerous state of moral hazard that we artificially cultivate with grace that excuses my every behavior. And the Apostle Paul says, by no means can you use grace as an excuse to consistently grieve God. This is the problem. This is the reason why we must wade through the difficult words of chapter 6, because we cannot afford to believe we can live any way we want to and still are safe from eternal consequences. In a church consistently models behavior that is far below the standard of the gospel. You know what we say, oh, that's just blank. Fill in the name. I mean, judge not lest you be judged. 
It's just the way he is, right? Blank, that person doesn't need you to talk more about grace. He needs you to love him better. He needs you to care about his eternal destination. He needs someone in his life who would say to him, start living in this condition of moral hazard. Hazard means danger. Stop living with that. Aim higher. This is what Paul is asking of us. Joe, Jim, Wong, Chen, whatever name you put in there, you are no longer a slave to sin, so stop obeying it. Verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's basically apologizing for the analogy. Imagine comparing slavery to sin to slavery to righteousness. He's embarrassed that he has to do that. But because we've got to serve somebody, there's no such thing as not serving. I must say, for just as you once presented your members, meaning your eyes, your hands, your mind, your feet, just as you once presented them to slaves, as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Do you see that this is going somewhere? Do you see that he's saying as you present yourself to impurity, it leads to even greater lawlessness. That's why there's no such thing as, I'm just going to dabble in this. Because as you start to serve one thing, you get deeper and deeper into service. You continue to serve lawlessness. It leads to more lawlessness. And the good news, though, is as you begin to serve righteousness, it leads to what? Sanctification. So, why then can't we say, I prayed that prayer, I believe it, I am saved by grace through what? Faith alone. This some of you recognize as John Piper. It also helps to have his name up there. Listen to what he says. Faith alone justifies. So it was faith in Jesus that got you to number two, immediately. But faith never comes alone. You know, my father was an alcoholic. When he heard the gospel, dramatically changed. He didn't stop having a craving for alcohol because he's got an addictive personality that he handed down to every one of his children. But what changed for him is his desire to serve alcohol. His desire to serve that craving changed. It didn't make him perfect. He, he didn't suddenly have a new perfection. But what it, saving faith does is it creates a desire for something different. A desire for holiness. 
So faith alone justifies, yes, but it doesn't come alone. It comes with this desire for a new direction. It's not a new perfection. Just, just a, a new direction. And so we see this chart. Back to the chart. This diagonal line, this is what we're calling sanctification. This is a process. This is lifelong. This is why you hear me say the gospel is not just good for that moment that you are justified by faith alone, but because something else came with faith. This desire for a new direction, that's what repentance is about. It's only about direction. That's why the word means turning. I was going one way. I heard the gospel. I needed to turn, but you know, when we're being sanctified, we're seeking a new direction. That means every single day, Ian has to turn. Every single day, by his grace, I am being sanctified. And this number three is a culmination when we will be perfected by his spirit, fully fit for heaven. Not just is God concerned about my Status. He's concerned about my state. While I am preparing for heaven, my state matters. So that new status, justification or justified, produces a desire for a change in direction, a change in my condition. My life and my eternity changed forever. Not just because my father had a change in status that he felt was triggered by this prayer of repentance, but my dad had a change in direction. His condition was every day different from every other father in our neighborhood. That is why faith became real to me, because I saw the gospel at work in my father every single day. So, what about the fruit that is cultivated? I've been circling it all the time. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. If you recall what I was circling, this repetitive verb that he kept on using, what fruit? What was the fruit you were getting when you were a slave to the things about which you are now ashamed? What was that fruit? For the end of that fruit is death. But, but Mr. Dillon, we, we, we just believe we actually can serve two masters. Even though you and Jesus said we can't, we, we just actually feel like we have no choice, like, because, pastor, you don't understand my boss. He's a very fierce one. I have no choice. Like. Or you, you, you don't understand my problems. You don't have my problems. Good for you. But I, I just feel like I have no choice. You will have no choice. No, no choice about your boss. No choice about addictive behaviors, no choice about being addicted even to bad choices unless um, you're crucified. 
This is why Eugene spent so much time last week talking about crucifixion. This is why the crucifixion, as horrific as it is, is so precious to believers. This, this is why we look at the crucifixion and say Friday is indeed good. Because all of these things are impossible unless you're a dead man. You've tried to stop. You, you can't stop. It's difficult to keep away from addictive behavior. So we remain enslaved to anger and enslaved to slander and enslaved to the tendency to create division and, and bitterness. We're, we're enslaved to porn and our own personal passions unless we are crucified. B because I, I was able to find a photo of a whole crowd of people who are not worried about their boss. I, I, I found a a photo of people who never struggle with sin. There, there, there is nobody in that graveyard thinking, man, I've got a poor uh, body image issue. There, there's no one worried about the image of body presented by media that they have to live up to. There, there is no one lying there worried about the criticism or praise of anyone. There, there is no one lying there thinking, boy, I sure hope my boss gives me a good performance evaluation. When you're dead, you're dead to those things. That's why it's so important for us to model in this grave that we have died. This is what the Apostle Paul boasted about consistently. From Galatians 6, he says, Far be it from me to boast, except what? In the cross of our Lord Jesus. Why? <clears throat> because in the cross, the world has been crucified to me. I no longer care about what the world cares about. And I have been crucified to the world. I no longer care what the world thinks about me. I'm not a slave to the world's standards. I don't feel an obligation to serve them. Because I am a slave to righteousness. And so he writes this, but now that you have been set free, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it not just uh, a little bit surprising that this verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, this verse that we have always been memorizing in order to share with our non-believing friend, is it not the least bit surprising to you that this verse was written to the church? Because in the church, there were people who embraced faith in Jesus Christ because intellectually, it made sense to them. A good way out. Live how I want to. Wipe my feet on the mat of grace and then walk into the fellowship of these followers of this new Messiah. 
There were some in the church for whom culturally it was obvious. Their parents taught them this. It was the path of least resistance. So culturally, they were a Christian. But whether culturally or intellectually, you are living as a Christian, you are living in moral hazard. Because unless there is in your heart and my heart this constant craving for the fruit of the gospel. And what is that fruit? It's the fruit by which every slave is measured. It's the fruit that Jesus was referring to when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What? The evidence of loving Christ is obeying Christ. This is the fruit that leads to greater righteousness. This desire for me to continually be dissatisfied with my current condition and long to move to greater sanctification. This is why when terrible things happen, God's people can say, Lord, will you not use this for my sanctification? This is why every single day this pastor wakes up and prays, God, turn me fresh to you. Because obedience is the fruit that feeds our faith. When we obey, God shows up. Stop asking what your spiritual gift is. Stop taking those spiritual gift inventories to explore what you might be good at because the fruit doesn't show up until we obey. Obedience comes first. Uh, this is John Samus. He was a Christian businessman living in California. Somehow, he had time to write over a hundred hymns. And I was exploring his catalog of hymns. And I'm not good at math. But I bet you 75% of his hymns had to do with the fruit that Christ longs for in my heart and your heart. 75% of his hymns are about obedience. And this, perhaps, is the best known. But we can never prove the delights of his love until all in the altar we lay for the favor he shows, for the love he bestows, or for them who will what? Trust and obey. The pleasure of the master is upon the faithful servant. So trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. This morning as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, I would like for us to go to a time of examination. 
Examination before the Lord's Supper is not me thinking, I wonder if the person next to me should take the wafer. It's about me asking, I wonder if I should. So I want to invite us again to the reflection question we began with. What kind of fruit have I been cultivating in the garden of my life? What am I most obviously obeying when people observe me, when they hear me speak? What master is most obvious? Is just Ian speaking his opinions? Is it Ian having a bad day? Is it Ian under stress? Or is it a servant of the Most High, faithfully serving righteousness? That is the ambition, the only ambition of the follower of Christ, to be found faithful. So as you examine your life now, can you honestly say before God, because I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm not asking you to come forward and make a public profession. But would you answer in your own heart, are these behaviors that lead to sanctification? the end of which is a gift of life. Are you currently allowing your master to make you fit for heaven? Or are you still living in rebellion to God as a slave to sin? If you're here and, and suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, this thing Christianity, it's my culture, but I don't know if it's my master, then right now where you are, before we come to the table, declaring the price for our justification paid, satisfied, then in your own heart, you could say, Lord, I'm turning now. If I've never be before turned, I I'm turning now. Free me from the shackles that bind me to my bad decisions. And bind me like a fetter, Lord, to Thee. Because you know my heart, I am prone to wander. I'm easily convinced So, Spirit, convince me now. My friends, saving faith dethrones sin and enthrones the living God. Saving faith, the evidence of it is I suddenly become horrified by my own sin. My own sin becomes offensive to me. Now, now, if right now you're thinking of someone else's sin 
if you're horrified by someone else's sin, then you have religion. Because saving faith, I will never ask, now what can I get away with? I will never try to sanctify the things that grieve God in my own life. I will flee from them. I will run into his forgiving embrace, not once, but daily. And it will never respond with moral outrage when someone confronts me. I will respond in brokenness, yes. In gratitude, certainly. But we cannot afford to live in community if we consistently and continually excuse by grace my bad behavior or yours. So if, like me, you have come to that terrifying moment in which you recognize Christianity is your culture, then for a friend just like me, you can today make it your living faith, your saving faith, and begin turning, longing for daily sanctification. You can begin today. Father God, how grateful we are that for the sake of all humanity, you are not satisfied with our just status. You are concerned even now by the state of everyone in this building. And so we invite you Show your mercy today. Respond to the prayers of those who have come. By your providence, you have brought us here. Show your mercy. Draw us in. Fetter us by your love to righteousness. Fill us afresh in the space you have made for yourself today with your sanctifying presence. We ask that you do this so that you would be glorified by your church, that you would be glorified by our behaviors, and that your name would be glorious in this nation. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.